It's a pretty stirring story how we're looking at in Daniel chapter 2. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. You've got lots to say through us, uh, to us through your word and in history, through what has happened to your people. We pray that we might learn what it means to stand firm for you, what it might cost us, your faithfulness and your mastery over all things, including the kings and powers of this world. We pray that we might not be ashamed of standing for the Lord Jesus Christ in anything we do or say. Amen. Well, living this as a Christian in this world, in our community, standing for Jesus can be a tricky business. Uh, it can be uh, difficult. Uh, we don't like being disliked or excluded. We don't like being pushed out of relationships or getting hassled for, because of our faith in Jesus. I'm sure we don't like getting hassled about anything, but we especially don't like getting hassled because of our faith in Jesus. And I'm pretty sure that God doesn't want us to be dorks as Christians. Uh, many uh, people have that view of uh, Christians that we're just weirdos and odd and uh, strange and uh, laugh funny and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. But uh, that's that's not the picture where to be in the thing. We're to aim to live at peace with people as God commands in Romans chapter 12. We should be likeable and kind and fun-loving and generous and uh, caring for those around us. After all, we know the God who made this awesome universe and this world and we of all people should know how to enjoy his blessings and his goodness. We should know what it means to know the Lord who loved us and, and know how to overflow with that love towards others. But the reality is that we cannot and we will not be universally accepted if we know Jesus, uh, if we follow him. It can't be the case. It won't be the case. In our second reading, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe, not may possibly be, but will be persecuted. You will find it difficult. There will be people who oppose you and who dislike you just because you say you're a Christian. If you seek to live for God as an exile in this world and refuse to participate in the idolatries that permeate it, like we'll see today that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did, there'll be varying levels of ridicule, of pressure, of antagonism, of derision. Uh, you may be looked over for promotion in your work. I know Christians in that position. I know Christians who've lost their jobs for being Christian. You may get left off the guest list for certain parties or just, you know, at the family gatherings be made to feel very awkward and stand in the corner and no one really wants to talk to you. They're related to you so they feel like they've got to say hi and cuddle you at Christmas but that's about it. Don't talk about what you did at the church service and all those kind of things. And in other places in the world you'll be targeted and threatened like we see happening throughout the Middle East. The reality that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego face of a death penalty for not, uh, not caving in is what many of our brothers and sisters in Christ face overseas today. Convert to Islam or die. That's their choice here. That's the choice many believers face today. We don't have it that tough. But Daniel chapter 3 is the first record I can think of of specifically religious persecution in the Bible. But it's certainly not the last, unfortunately. Uh, there are many other troubles that God's people faced beforehand, but most of that was kind of economic expansionist policies, you know, border skirmishes and things. It wasn't just to do with religion. There were other things going on. But here it's, will you worship our God or not? 
and you know, we're going to make you pay if you will not. Now, that should be a bit surprising to us because at the end of chapter 2, if you were here last week, there was an astonishing moment when King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylonia, which spans the entire known world through the, the Middle East and into Europe and down into Africa, this man in charge of everything falls before Daniel, who's a Jew, and says, Surely your God, Daniel, is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Your God is the best one ever. Uh, remember King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and uh, he threatened to, uh, to kill everyone if no one could uh, tell him not only what it meant but what it was. Uh, he was the king, he had that power. And Daniel was the only one who could do it because God gave him the answer and he told uh, Nebuchadnezzar the answer, something none of the other wise men could do. They said it would take one of the gods to be able to reveal it. Daniel's God, the God, revealed it to Daniel and he explained it. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel and his friends and he'd fallen down and worshipped Daniel's God. And so from last week's passage, uh, you might have gotten the impression that Nebuchadnezzar's converted to Judaism. He's now one of the people of God. He's, he's a worshipper of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Well, chapter 3 shows us that's not quite what happened. What happened was that Nebuchadnezzar had just added the Hebrew God to his pantheon, to his collection of gods. Just another one. He may have been even a really great one, but he was just another God. Just as today many people acknowledge that God's there, that Jesus is a cool guy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to worship him alone or that they have any real relationship with him. They may just have added him to their pantheon, to their collection of things they know and serve and, you know, may believe a bit. We don't know how much time's elapsed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. It could possibly have been several years. But Nebuchadnezzar gets this idea that he's going to have a giant monument constructed, a statue that he'll call everyone, everywhere, from all the tribes, tongues, nations, cultures that he has conquered to come and worship. Uh, building projects like this in the ancient world didn't happen overnight. Uh, the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus took 120 years to build. Um, the Colossus of Rhodes, another one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, and uh, similar to this, the Statue of Liberty, uh, took 12 years to construct, according to the historians at the time, and it was only slightly taller than the one that Nebuchadnezzar built here. This giant monument that Nebuchadnezzar commissioned was made of gold, and it was, the text says, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. That's, uh, in our terms, 30 metres high and 3 metres wide. Okay. Think of the height of the church building on the outside. Multiply that by 3. That's how tall it is. And it's about the width of one of these pews, maybe slightly wider. So it's tall and it's skinny. Yeah, you might think of the, uh, the uh, that obelisk, the, the Washington Monument in DC, which, by the way, took almost 40 years to build. Now, maybe it was a statue of one of uh, the gods or of, maybe it was of Nebuchadnezzar himself if he was a really, really tall and thin man. Uh, uh, he'd have to be extremely skinny and tall to this to be a good representation. Or maybe it was something like this, the vision that he'd had of the statue in the last chapter, where you remember Nebuchadnezzar was described as the head of gold of all these empires of the world. Maybe he's kind of trying to form that kind of thing. 
We don't know exactly what it was like, but we do know it was meant to be worshipped because when he'd finished building it, he had an enormous party to celebrate, inviting all of the dignitaries, including people from all the conquered peoples of the world, to come and gather this hugely eclectic bunch to celebrate the unveiling of the structure to rally, um, a rally to unify the empire. And so what, let's read. He, he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the provincial officials, anyone who's in any sort of position of notoriety, any of the kind of leaders, to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly summoned, This is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the, I'm going to call it the band, uh, when all the instruments play, the band plays, you must fall down and you must worship the image. The image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. He demands a public demonstration of adoration for what his hands have made. And as far as he's concerned, everyone's going to do it and everyone is doing what he says. Because verse 7, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the band, um, all the peoples, nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And so you can imagine there, in satisfaction, looking at it, all of them bowing down to his statue. And so whether it's an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself and he's really tall and skinny guy, or whether it's an image of a god or an object associated with the gods, it was meant to be worshipped. And a, the Bible has a word for that kind of thing, something you bow down to and you worship. What's the Bible's word for that kind of thing? It's an idol. And idols were strictly forbidden for God's people. Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God hates idols. He says he's jealous. He's jealous with a jealous fury when we worship things that are not him. And our heroes know that. And so this posed quite a dilemma for Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who were there because they had been appointed at the end of chapter 2 as administrators, as government officials over the province of Babylon at Daniel's request. Daniel, if you remember from last chapter, remained at the royal court. He never went to these kind of things. He was the head of the king's wise men and so he wasn't at this ceremony. And so the question is now, what are these three Hebrew guys going to do on their own without Daniel? Because everything else, Daniel's been the, lead, the ringleader and they've gone along with him, but it's only because Daniel did it first. Now they're on their own. What are they going to do? Everyone's doing this worship thing and to not have gone along would be really uncomfortable. And I think it would have been really easy to rationalise if you were there amongst the crowd as a believer in God but told to worship this thing. What might you say to yourself? You might say, oh, be all right to bow down to just today uh, because we'll be killed if we don't and God wouldn't want us to be killed, would he? God, God's not in that. 
Yeah, and God will know that we didn't really mean it. You know, it'll be okay. We love him deep down. Or what about, it's just cultural. The Babylonians, they're, they're pagans. They don't really understand our religion or the laws of our God. We don't want to offend them. We don't want to ruin our witness to them. Let's just bow down now. Maybe they'll get it, you know, they'll listen to us later. You know, a bit of give and take. You know, we do a bit of their religion. Maybe they'll do a bit of ours. Uh, and anyone, you know, nobody we knows here, so no one's going to see what we're doing, so it won't matter to anyone. Or, or what about well, the fact that God's forgiving? God forgives whatever we do, so Yahweh's loving, slow to anger, quick to forgive. Let's just bow down this one time and say sorry to God right after. They'll do it, won't it? Or here's a good rationalisation. Let's just kneel on the outside physically, but on the inside, spiritually, we'll be standing up and we'll be worshipping the true God in our hearts, and God will understand that. Uh, that's the rationalisation I used years ago when I was doing judo. Um, at the start, you had to do this meditation session, and they tell you to uh, empty your mind and let the chi flow and stuff, because it's, it's an act of worship, martial arts, uh, of Eastern, uh, Eastern things. Uh, and I sat there, and I had no idea what to do. So sitting there, everyone's kneeling in silence, eyes closed, and emptying their minds. And uh, and the only thing I could think to do was pray the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, I wasn't even a Christian, but that's all I could think to do. So, so we're sitting there. I don't know what they were doing, but I was praying the Lord's Prayer. Why couldn't they have just done that? Surely that's a godly thing to do, and no one will notice, and you won't be, you know, hurt in any way. But no matter how much you spin it. It was wrong. And they knew it. They simply couldn't participate in this worship and still be faithful to God. And that choice remains for us today. And though we don't face the death penalty for refusing to join in with the idolatry that's around us, it's still very, very hard for us to resist, isn't it? To stand up and be different, to stand up and to say, no, I will not join in, I will not do it. It's not easy when there's so many religions represented in Australia now and the public policy is everything and everyone's okay and you mustn't say anything about anything. We're told in our schools and in our media that all gods, all religions are valid, uh, especially when everyone's telling us around that uh, the only sin that exists is to be too religious and that's partly because we've been seduced by a far more unifying national religion of idolatry the worship of materialism and the worship of pleasure, the worship of self. That is the true state religion of Australia and we are being called on every day to join in the worship, to bow down to the gods of our community. John Calvin, a few hundred years ago, reformer, said that the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. Think of a blacksmith shop in the front, the fire, and he's got his uh, anvil there and working. That's the forge down the front. And it's pumping out our human hearts are like that forge, pumping out idols. They're just We may want things to worship. Or put it another way, you know, our hearts are idol factories. They're conveyor belts coming out with just the idols of our lives and we want them. We constantly make something other than our creator out to be our God. Uh, it's usually some part or aspect of creation itself. We don't normally sacrifice animals to Ishtar or Aphrodite or Cupid, but you know the number of emails I get about Viagra or the ads that pop up on Facebook for you know, dating Russian women, 
uh, and things like that show that sex is one of the gods in our community. It's promoted as a god. I mean, if you're not having sex regularly with random people, then you're not living. We don't have a god of war, but many certainly put their trust in military might instead of the one who's called the Lord of hosts, the god of armies. And as a nation, we idolise money, success, prestige, leisure, sports, movie stars. Who do our kids want to be like? They want to be like Harry Potter or like, you know, uh, a whole host of other things that we worship. And you can tell what people's idols are. It's really easy to tell. Yeah, what are they sacrificing most for? That's their God. What do they most fear will happen to them in life? Well, maybe that's tied up to what their real God is. Where do they run to for comfort and help when they're in trouble? To money or to food or family? What? Where are they going to look for salvation? Good bet, it's their idol. And yet the Bible insists that there is but one God. He is the transcendent, sovereign, maker of heaven and earth and he alone deserves all of our worship and praise and concern. He's the... He made the world, he owns the world, he redeems the world, he's going to judge the world and he alone gives ultimate satisfaction. He is a jealous God and he demands exclusive allegiance who commands, you know, Jesus says the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? Gotta love God. Yeah, everyone should love God, shouldn't they? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. That is the first and great commandment. That means love God with everything. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And yet, still, as the book of Romans declares, humanity has rebelliously and foolishly insisted upon worshipping and serving created things rather than creator. I'm doing this just as much as you are. We serve created things rather than the creator. And so idols are everywhere around us and we're constantly bombarded with pressures to bow down and to worship other things other than God. But we must not give in. God's jealousy against idolatry remains and though they faced the death penalty for non-compliance, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego stood their ground. They could not bow down to this thing and remain faithful to God. That's what our heroes know. They cannot even pretend to do things the king's way and still worship God. It's one or the other. It's the idol or it's God. And so they defy the king and they refuse to obey they might wish that no one saw them, but they're caught out. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You've issued this decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the band uh, must fall down and worship the image of gold, and whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. These are senior officials in your government. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. How does Nebuchadnezzar react to that? Let's just say he's a bit miffed. <laughs> Insolent. You know? he, he summons them in. He demands an explanation. He lays it on them. And before him now, they're given one more chance to obey. 
We're going to play the music now. And I want to see you bow down and worship the idol. And if you don't, you're going to burn. Turn to Allah now or we will kill you. What happens? It's truly incredible. You feel the pressure to give in, right? If you were there, just do it. Just get it over and done with, right? What do they say? Shadrach, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Can you imagine doing that? <laughs> You'd be shaking with fear probably at the time. <laughs> uh, the king was angry before. They weren't obeying his commands, but now they just stick it right in his face. Are they deliberately trying to bait him? Are they just being narky right-wing fundamentalists like uh, we would be called in Sydney today? No, they're just being godly. And the phrase that really struck me, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. What they're saying is we don't care whether any you or any of your lackeys pass judgment on us. The one whose opinion matters to us is God's. He's our judge. God's verdict is the one we care about. We don't need to defend ourselves before you. We know God. They know that God can save them from the fire uh, that they're going to be thrown to if he wants to do that. Uh, They know that God can save them and will save them. And I, I, I don't know that they're saying he will automatically rescue us from the fire, that maybe they've got a a sort of hope of the resurrection that Daniel 12 is going to talk about a bit later on. The Old Testament knows about afterlife and heaven and hell and all those kind of things. They know that God can save them one way or the other, and but they know it's also quite possible that God may not choose to rescue them from the flames this time. But no matter what, live or die, we will not deny God. And so they refuse again to obey. How does Nebuchadnezzar take that? Not too well. He has the furnace cranked up seven times hotter than normal. Now, I'm guessing this is the furnace that was used to construct the the statue of gold. And if that's the case, the melting point of gold is 1,064 degrees centigrade, a bit hotter than your oven at home. Anyone go up that high? Uh, And I don't know how they measured it back then, but seven times that is 7,488 degrees centigrade, which is tens of thousands Fahrenheit. Um, Fairly toasty. (laughs) And you thought it was hot on Friday when it was 40. In fact, it's so hot, the guards die when they go near the fire. Verse 20, Nebuchadnezzar commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, the furnace so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. I mean, they've got to be dead, right? The guards died following the king's command. 
But as Nebuchadnezzar watches on in morbid fascination, his delight in seeing those who resist his will burn to death soon turns to horror. He leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound, unharmed. The fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. When I, when I cook a barbecue, well, I smell like sausage, right? <laughs> You may think I smell like sausage anyway, but um, this is a burnt sausage when I do the barbecue too. So <laughs> Sometimes I get carried away starting the thing up and the gas isn't working properly and I've cranked the thing and I get in there with the lighter and whoosh, all the, the hairs are singed, right, <laughs> kind of thing. I once lit a gas oven that refused to turn on and a blazing fireball came and burned off my eyebrows in front of my hair. Anyway, it was a bit exciting. Uh, that was on a camp. I was a cook. I never cooked on a camp since. They walked out of this furnace completely unscathed. And this remarkable salvation is put down to this fourth person with them in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar describes him as one who looks like a son of the gods. Later on he describes him as an angel. This is no ordinary guy. He is blazing in glory, brighter than the blazing of the furnace. You think, who was it? Who's the guy? Well, there's a lot of people who'd say this is one of many examples in the Old Testament of Jesus appearing before he was incarnate as a human being. Um, Maybe. Did Jesus himself come and walk with them in the fire? Was it simply an angel of God? I don't know. But in some way, in some form, God came and stood there at their side. He stood with them through their fiery ideal and he saved them. And whether or not it's Jesus, it really does point the way to the way that Jesus will save uh, those who trust him later on when he does come. For the guy is with them in the fire and his presence means that the flames will not touch them, that the heat and the wrath and the, the fury of the king and the flames Well, he's taken it away. He shields them and he protects them from it. And it's pointing to Jesus. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is dumbfounded for the second time in two chapters. He ends up praising the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28, said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and they defied the king's command and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own God. I wonder if that would make a great gravestone for a Christian, wouldn't it? Imagine. Imagine Bill. I don't want you dead, but just imagine you died walking out. We had to bury you next week. What do you want on your gravestone? You know, that would be pretty good, wouldn't it? Praise be to the God of Bill who sent his angel, rescued his servant, He trusted in him. He defied the king's command. He was willing to give up his life rather than serve or worship any god except his god. That'd be all right, wouldn't it? 
Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces, their houses be burned in, uh, turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Earlier on we missed it but he, he shouted out defiance. He said no God can save from this fire. Now he's saying there, there is a God who can and no other God can. Is he saved now? Has he really come to know God this time? The God he acknowledges has no equal, the only one who can save this way. Well, we'll have to wait and see. But let's just be honest with ourselves for a moment. How hard it is, how hard is it for us to let people know that we're Christians, let alone stand up for Jesus when the chips are down? It's very easy, isn't it, to join in with the flow, to join in the same discussions and activities no matter how godless and idolatrous they may be. You look at this inspiring story and the question you're probably asking is, how can I have that courage of those guys? I, you know, I, I just about. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a wuss. <laughs> I want to suggest the only way to stand under pressure is to know that Jesus stands beside you and he will never let you go. Do you know that Jesus is on your side? Do you know he's your advocate before the judge of all the earth? Do you know that there's no one and nothing that can can snatch you out of your hand if you're his? So he promises in John 20. You see, if you've put your trust in Jesus, then you have stood before an authority higher than that even of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world, and you have been acquitted. And so you can stand before anyone on this earth and say, I don't need to defend myself before you. I don't need your approval. I don't need you to think that I'm okay. Your assessment of me does not matter because the King of kings and the Lord of lords has pronounced me righteous in his sight, not because I am, but because he's kind. Because that's what's happened when you come to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. You're his enemy and you become his friend. You're outside the family you become his son or daughter. And so you're now secure. The wrath of God towards you has been averted so that you... You shouldn't be intimidated by the wrath of kings or the wrath of your boss or the wrath of your peers because it really is of no consequence. And it's that way because Jesus' death on our behalf has paid for our sins. We've been brought into a relationship with God, the, the true God, the true and living God, the one who made everything, the one who owns everything, the one who will judge everything. And he loves us. He accepts us. He, he adopts us. He, he promises eternal life. Now, you don't have any of those things if you, if you haven't come to Jesus, if you haven't recognised who he is and you know, understood the promises that Paul and Vicky made before that Jesus is God who's come and that we're sinners who need salvation and all those things. And, and they would beg you to, to think about it, to say... Come to Jesus, have everything that he's offering. But for those who have, he, you know, he promises that even now he stands with us, even in our darkest days. Hebrews 13.5, the eternal God, the sovereign ruler of all nations, the Alpha and the Omega, the Ancient of Days, has called you his own and said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I will never abandon you. Or as Paul puts it so eloquently in Romans 8, if God is for us, who could be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Well, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Do you believe that? Do you truly grasp how phenomenal that is? How freeing that is? That is our boast and our joy if we know Jesus. And it's the only way you can stand under pressure, knowing Jesus stands beside you and he will never let you go. For with him, then you'll have no need to defend yourself before other people to make them like you. Their evaluation of you won't ultimately matter. And you can love people, not, not to win their approval, just because loving them is a good thing to do. You can even start to pray for your persecutors. And turn the other cheek and let them slap you on the other cheek when they've slapped you on one. Because they don't need to love you, but you need to love them. And you can start to want for them that they know what you know. The God who runs the universe, who loves you, that they might be part of his family too. If you know Jesus stands beside you, you're freed up, freed up to love freed up to live. And so may our great and glorious God capture our hearts with his grace and power. Father, we thank you for this astonishing event that happened that you have given to us in your word of supreme courage and of conviction in the face of hostile opposition. We pray that as we face our little oppositions, we might have their courage. We pray for our brothers and sisters overseas who are facing the death penalty for claiming to know you. We pray that they might stand firm, that they might know that you can save them, whether in this life or the next. We pray that you'll be with them. We pray for the governments making decisions. Please have mercy. We pray that you'll sort out the problems, however that may be. And Father, we pray, please, that we might stand firm for you <laughs> and that many might come not just to make the confession that Nebuchadnezzar did, but might really believe it, that you are the God, that there is no other God who can save, and that even those who hate us might love you and come to understand your love for them in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.